Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Kalev Kalametz. Kalev is a co-founder and CEO of Fermi Energia a company established in early 2019 by Estonian nuclear energy professionals and business people to develop and deploy small modular reactors in Estonia. Kalev earned his PhD in energy economics from Tallinn University of Technology and has extensive private and public sector experience from an Estonian private energy company and the Ministry of Economic Affairs. Kalev has also served as deputy director of the Geologic Survey of Estonia and a member of parliament in Estonia. Kalev, welcome to Decouple. Hello, Chris. That's uh, <clears throat> quite the list of accomplishments. I was just checking uh, your age. I saw you were born in, in 1979. Um, it's, uh, it's an impressive list of things that you've, uh, you've gotten up to in your life. Yeah, we, we say in Estonia, because we are so small nation, like every, every <clears throat> active Estonian has to have a, uh, take the place of five average <laughs> persons. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a, I'm a six foot nine or, or two meters and eight centimeters. And I've always felt, you know, because of my enormous appetite, how much I've needed to eat that I've had to, you know, carry on at least a task of two to three people. So I can, I can sympathize with that sentiment a little bit. Um, so kind of today, you know, I think we're going to be sort of extending this, this theme of, you know, the nuclear secret sauce, how to make nuclear work, um, how to accomplish a, a build-out. You're coming to us from Estonia, um, a nuclear newcomer nation, hopefully, in, in the next uh, several years, hopefully this decade, certainly. Um, but I want to understand a little bit more about yourself, and, and maybe that will give us a window onto Estonia. Um, you know, you grew up in Soviet-controlled Estonia. Um, I was reading your father was a manager in, in one of the Soviet agriculture production units, and I think that really shaped your world and political views. So I'm, I'm interested in, in understanding you and, and your country and your background a little bit better. Yeah, so uh, uh, the, the, the fundamental logic is that we, we, we have to make it. We make, have to survive. And in order to survive over here, we have to be pretty busy. We, 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 we can't allow ourselves to be uh, left behind. We can't allow ourselves to be, you know, uh, not to be responsible. So uh, uh, my upbringing is that uh, you need to be socially uh, responsible for your society, for your nation, and uh, do your best uh, that is possible to do. And uh, I developed uh, over over the course of my life uh, some insight and understanding of, of uh, economics and, and energy economics. And uh, yeah, uh, and and therefore I, I felt the responsibility when I was uh, serving as, as deputy director of, of geological survey and having this unique experience of establishing a government uh, agency um, that uh, yeah that, uh, as the SMR technology was coming of age and I was had developed um, a few years earlier you know, way back in 2008 2011. Uh, some basic understanding of uh, nuclear engineer economics and engineering that that um, given that no one else is is moving forward uh, with the, uh, the neither the politicians or the government owned utility is moving forward with the idea of how to deploy the SMR in Estonia 
then, then uh, given that, that we had educated people on nuclear engineering and we, some business professionals that were quite interested in that, we, we, we felt compelled to, to move on that opportunity. And I, we, we made a 100% right move. Mm-hmm. So let's again sort of situate you within within Estonia. We were just joking uh, before starting this podcast. Um, a very small country existing on the border of a very large and historically pretty aggressive country. Um, you know, a country that uh, has is very invested in in shale oil for its energy at this time. You know, and in the context of a planned shale oil phase out in a, in a short period of time, facing some very big energy questions. So help help me flesh that out a little bit as an outsider to, to understand your reality where you're coming out of. Yeah, uh, so uh, it was in the dying hours of of basically that Tsarist uh, Russia that they were cut off in the. Uh, end of the uh, First World War from the coal supplies um, and uh, the, their capital, then capital St. Petersburg. And then uh, the Tsarist Russia made a significant monetary investment in uh, opening the quarries of oil shale in northeastern uh, uh, Estonia. So for 100 years, we have been mining uh, and producing oil shale oil uh, out of this uh, shale. So it's totally different than the regular oil shale known in uh, or shale oil known in in the states with uh, hydrofracking we do regular quarry mining and then pyrolysis so meaning uh, without oxygen input uh, heating it up and it releases some uh, the, the assay is something 12 14 uh, percent of oil from the uh, uh, content and and then later after the second world war uh, when the electrification really happened in the soviet union and we were occupied by the soviets then it went to a large scale, 3000 megawatts of oil shale uh, power generation, which was mostly supplied to uh, Leningrad then. And, and when uh, was as a leftover uh, to, to Estonia. But now uh, the situation clearly is as we are members of the European Union and we have meaningful and serious um, carbon pricing uh, in place. And this was my PhD also about uh, whether that uh, industry as a whole is sustainable. Uh, it became totally apparent to me that it is unsustainable. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, the, so the, the, the events over the last two, three years have been, uh, been very rapid in, in uh, reducing the power, share, uh, power generation for, from oil share from 12 terawatt hours to, to basically two last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, touching on the history again, I was uh, looking, at, looking a little bit at the World War II context. And I think once, once the Germans retreated from the uh, Caspian oil area, Estonia became of um, utmost importance as they were such an oil-starved nation at that time. Um, so, I mean, a, a pretty fascinating uh, area. Um, and again, a population of, of 1.3 million, I think you were saying. Um, I was just checking you guys out on Electricity Map again prior to the show. Um, things weren't looking too bad in terms of your emissions, but then I saw that, you know, most of it was coming from Finland at the moment. So there's, there's a lot of interties in the area, your neighbors, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, um, you guys are planning on like unplugging from the, the Russian grid. So th- there's a lot of sort of geopolitics, I think that, that underlie what you're up to as well. Absolutely, definitely. And uh, so uh, we, we will desynchronize from Russian grid system by end of 2025, all investments are taking, uh, happening right now. And um, and indeed, we we get uh, significant supplies from Finland, and and also the uh, re- very very important input to to and why we were courageous enough to initiate uh, 
the Fermi Energia was uh, lessons from Finland, how they have deployed nuclear with private capital, without government subsidies, mm. which, which some, some people believe that every nuclear project in, in, in the world does get government subsidies. No, they don't. In Finland, they don't. Mm. So uh, fully with private capital, uh, two projects. One project was initiated in, in 2007 uh, by, by people who uh, were left out of the, uh, the other private capital project um, and, and started off a nuclear, large nuclear power plant deployment project, which, well, now is a little bit delayed and, and uh, we see the trials and uh, challenges with, with, with that project. And sorry, I, I'm, I'm actually not as familiar with Finland. Is that an EPR or a VVER? Or yeah, well, uh, they're moving forward with EPR, the French paddy, uh, in, in Olkiluoto 3, and it will be coming online next year. The fuel has been loaded and they're doing uh, final testing. But uh, the, what the, what the Fennovoima project is de deploying in north of Finland is uh, VVR uh, 1200. But uh, so it's a Russian well-known design, but they're doing a, a bespoke Finnish version of the VVR. So uh, as, as alluded in many of your previous uh, episodes, uh, they, that makes really nuclear really expensive. Mm -hmm. Okay, I didn't realize those were those were sort of entirely privately funded. I, I've, I think, shared that bias you're mentioning before. Um, again, looking at the, the nuclear secret sauce and, and looking at the major buildouts and um, you know, people have challenged me with the U.S. example where, you know, almost 100 gigawatts were built in about 20 years or so um, and where that was largely a, a private enterprise. However, I mean, it emerged within regulated electricity markets where, you know, the, the rate pair would ultimately pick up the bill, even if the, you know, the, the steam provider or the uh, construction companies were, were private. So I'm definitely interested in understanding that a little bit more. Maybe we'll, we'll deep dive that a little bit as, as we carry forward. Um, let's talk a little bit, though, about, you know, you mentioned Estonia is facing much more towards Europe now. Um, Europe has uh, a lot of carbon regulations uh, in the works, carbon pricing, um, and that this is, this is having an impact. Because, again, this, for lack of a better term, this, this nuclear secret sauce, it seems like nuclear really only thrives when you have a few things at play. You have fossil fuel shortage, you know, whether that's like France, just because you don't have any indigenous reserves of fossil fuels or something like an OPEC crisis, or if you're a small island nation dealing with highly volatile, you know, gas or fossil fuel import prices, um, you generally need a, a heavy industrial base. And, you know, in, in my experience, or what, from what I've looked at so far, you need, you need a, a decent amount of state support, even if that's not financing. So, um, one of those potentials for sort of fossil fuel shortage and artificial one is, is the carbon pricing, um, making, making fossil resources uneconomic. So tell us a little bit about um, the impacts of that, that carbon pricing, whether that's going to give enough of an impetus for nuclear to become attractive uh, in the Baltic nations. So it's not only carbon pricing, uh, even though this is the key, key uh, mechanism, but it's um, also the reality is that in, in Europe, we don't have fossil fuels. So there, there was some uh, natural gas from Groningen field in, in Netherlands. That's gone. Right. That's gone. Uh, there's uh, coal in, in, uh, in Poland, but actually they're importing more coal than they mine themselves. And the coal, Polish coal has always been subsidized hmm. in the mining. They've been very uneconomical. Interesting. Extremely economic, uneconomical. And uh, it's more social aspect of, of keeping it out of nostalgia 
and political mechanism of labor unions. And the same applies also, also to some other uh, coal basins uh, in Western Europe, where they have been uh, historically subsidized. So the coal imported with, well, let's say, uh, moderate uh, environmental standards from Colombia and uh, South Africa, uh, that's why it's kind of cheap. And also the reason why uh, methane or, or natural gas is so cheap, because there is no externality right now on the methane emissions. And mm -hmm. as we hear from IPCC, 0.4 degrees of the uh, forcing of the increase, temperature increase, is not due to the uh, CO2 emissions, but due to methane. And methane is most potent, 20, 40 times more potent than uh, greenhouse gas than uh, in short term, uh, at least as, as compared to CO2. So uh, and so in, in, in Europe, we have a whole really huge package of different uh, regulations uh, beside the EU emissions trading system that uh, relate to uh, support to renewables, relate to uh, incentivizing uh, governments, uh, relate to governments getting funding uh, for re uh, research and development, uh, getting also the um, emission revenues, they have to allocate 50% of that into uh, emissions reductions. And so, and there are specific em uh, efficiency uh, regulations in uh, Europe for transportation and all wholesale economy-wide. And just on July 14, uh, the Fit for, for 55 uh, package, so 55% reduction compared to, was it 2001? Uh, emissions level has to be reached, legally binding now, has to be reached by 2030. And it is legally binding also that by 2050, we have to reach zero, the EU wholesale. And that's bigger, well, not as big as maybe uh, emissions-wise as the uh, United States combined, but it's quite, quite significant. And also very significant in that package is that we will and have to be, uh, and one of the parties, carbon border adjustment. So if there are cars, steel, fertilizer, power, imported cement, uh, chemicals imported from China, Russia, Arab states, United States to Europe, then you have to uh, uh, have to register that and you have to buy the uh, EM emission uh, credits at the same price as European uh, producers to level the playing field. And this absolutely has to happen by 1st of January 2023. So this will be really significant for anyone in the world wanting to, on our planet, to wanting to import to the European Union, which is one of the wealthiest places to, to import your products to. Wow. No, I mean, it's, it's very interesting hearing about sort of, uh, in, in the UK as well, sort of legal mandates on reaching that zero by a certain date. Um, I know the EU has a pretty strong track record of imposing regulations and there's, you know, amongst a number of countries, there's kind of frustrations. And, and I think that's probably some of what you saw with Brexit and other similar uh, movements that spring up every once in a while. But, you know, in, in my context in Canada and, and looking south of the border to the U.S., um, I tend to look at these um, these aspirations as, as uh, not very serious. It's, it's a very easy thing for politicians to say to... Uh, you know, assuage the, the, the climate anxiety of, of a certain section of their, their electoral base. But, you know... Yeah, I know it's easy to be cynical, but, uh, but yeah. here, over here, it's very serious. It and it has had, over the last three years, 
very meaningful impact in uh, phasing out uh, shutting down coal mm -hmm. and and uh, now the, the price has reached 55 euros uh, per ton. ton of carbon so 60 uh, dollars let's say american dollars and it has to reach 100 euros 110 dollars per ton by 2030 it absolutely has to yeah. for uh, green so to say green car uh, electrolysis uh, hydrogen to be more competitive compared to right. uh, methane reforming yeah. uh, hydrogen. And, and this also means that uh, what we see uh, by this decade, end of this decade at those carbon prices is not only totally eliminating coal power generation in European Union, almost uh, totally, we increasingly are going to see a natural gas power generation becoming uncompetitive, especially compared to uh, nuclear power. That's yeah, it's very interesting. In my own context here uh, in Ontario, which is a you know real nuclear powerhouse in North America, we're about sixty-five percent uh, nuclear generation. Um, yeah, our, our only fossil, our only real emitting source on the grid is is natural gas plants, which we don't have to run very often. Um, but we will have to because we're taking one of our nuclear plants offline soon, unfortunately. But it, it is really interesting. So we have we've got a carbon tax in place, but it only is uh, taxing 10 percent of the emissions of these plants. So Jesus. Right. So, yeah, 370 grams uh, of CO2 per kilowatt hour. You're only taxed if you're above that. And some and this is not life cycle emissions as calculated by the IPCC, but at the stack emissions. So, again, there I'm. I'm interested in, in um, you know, whether these EU regulations are, you know, will they be taxing every ton of, of gas, even with large emitters? Absolutely. Like, like gas plants? Okay, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And I then the shock on is that also district heating, also, um, so all the sectors going into the carbon border adjustment will have zero free allocation by the end of this decade. Wow. So this means that all steel, all cement, they will have zero free allocation and they will have to buy the emission rights from the market. So which means that there is huge incentive to have decarbonized steam supply, uh, power supply, uh, whatever source of energy that is low carbon. So as you're saying, there's a big opportunity here for nuclear then. But absolutely. But and that's why I'm super excited to be yeah. at the right time, at the right place with the right business. And I love seeing the optimism and the excitement. Um, <clears throat> at times, I, I kind of oscillate, I think, and maybe I'm in a bit of a pessimistic phase at the moment, um, going from, you know, the podcast where it's a lot of, um, you know, not impartial observership, but kind of satisfying a curiosity or a fascination with the topic versus, you know, on the ground activism, trying to, trying to make change. And you, you kind of realize the scale of, of what we're up against. Um, yeah, I know in the planet of America, carbon pricing is... Uh, some far out uh, leftist idea that uh, yeah. seems totally absurd, uh, equally absurd as uh, true. Uh, what is it? Uh, medical, uh, uh, medical. What they don't have American uh, medical insurance, right? Medicare, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they believe that, that this is total uh, communism, communism and stuff, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that uh, everybody should have the right to shoot people on the street or something. That is the fundamental human right. Uh, right. Uh, yeah, I know. Planet America is quite uh, it's a different than different. Europe. Very different context, for sure. So there's this opportunity for nuclear in Europe. However, um, you know, I'd say that, you know, there's been this huge fight in the EU taxonomy, whether nuclear is a quote unquote sustainable energy source. 
Um, you know, with the Scientific Council weighing in more recently saying that, yes, it is, uh, it is no more unsustainable than any other form of, of green energy. Um, that being said, it seems like there's some geopolitical blocks here. There's, you know, Germany, Austria, I guess Belgium, very, very anti-nuclear, <clears throat> you know, willing to really go to the hilt on this. Um, it seems like there's some cracks in that. There, you know, France is starting to speak more positively about nuclear. Um, but wh where would you say that um, this optimistic vision for nuclear playing a role is strongest? Or what's, what sections of the EU bloc um, are trying to fight to keep nuclear as a, as a key part of meeting these challenges that you're describing, that these regulations are going to put in place? Yeah. So there are three, 30 members, uh, European Union members, who are uh, actively pursuing uh, nuclear new build or preparing for that. Mm -hmm. So that is almost the half. Right. Uh, indeed, uh, uh, Malta, uh, indeed, uh, Luxembourg, uh, Portugal, Ireland, officially, they are not uh, on, on the on the on the on the percip of, of, of moving that uh, direction. But uh, indeed, 13 is out of 27 is, you know, almost half. And yeah. that doesn't include Estonia. So, um, so I, I think that the, uh, we are a democratic union. We are not ruled by Germany. Uh, there will be interesting discussions ahead. So the second delegated act of the uh, taxonomy, uh, it, it, is it, it is possible to be meaningfully hope hopeful that it will be positive uh, uh, conclusion, positive uh, compromise uh, between uh, and the two difficult items of natural gas and uh, nuclear being uh, being addressed uh, in that uh, delegated act, I I, I think it would, should be in October. So I mean, it seems like um, perhaps you know the 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 mainstream idea about decarbonization um, <clears throat> amongst traditional environmentalists, or let's say you know folks in Germany with the energy venda, is that we're just going to build more and more renewables, um, and we'll be able to use our firm resources less and less that are existing in the background. And I mean, in the case of Germany, a quite wealthy country, um, you've basically got a parallel grid of, of intermittent sources that at times, you know, occupy most of the grid and at substantial times are, are absent and, and needing to be backed up. I mean, Germany is a very wealthy country. They're able to build sort of two parallel grids here. Um, is that an option for, for other countries to do? It's not even an option for Germany. I'm uh, mathematically confident that uh, they will have uh, uh, insufficient supply if there is a normal uh, normal winter, uh, meaning that they mm -hmm. will have, uh, like, like it was this uh, January, February. Uh, so as they are shutting down end of this year, three units and the final three units, uh, at the same time, Belgium is shutting down a few units uh, and uh, th there will be serious challenges, serious challenges. Uh, the, obviously, uh, the officials are denying that, uh, the Greeks or TSOs are denying that, but they're equally in denial as the Texas uh, ERCOT was in denial, right. or the Casio is in denial of the reality of, of the pain to the customers and, and poor consumers. So I, I, I'm, I, I'm extremely, uh, I, I'm not concerned that they will have problems that will be highlighting the limits of, uh, of the strategy, irresponsible strategy that they have chosen and trying to put uh, through European Union, also to other member states to, you know, to coalesce or something like that.
Yeah, I think I was uh, listening to an interview with uh, Meredith Angwin recently, the famous author of Shorting the Grid, who's uh, quoted on Decouple almost every episode. Um, and she was talking about the difference between, you know, your grandmother's blackouts and these, these impending blackouts of the future that represent crises in, in generation. Um, and, you know, the blackouts that I think we're used to in the, in the developed world are a tree falls on a power line and a line crew chops it up and you're, you're back up and running. And it's a kind of very localized impact. And what we saw with, uh, with Texas and ERCOT was we came very close to this need for a black start where we would have been, you know, without a grid for two or three weeks. Um, which would have had enormous uh, human consequences. So it sounds like what you're describing is that Europe is heading towards a crisis of generation as we shut down nuclear and, and coal plants across Europe. Um, there's not reliable power that's going to fill that in. Um, Meredith Angwin says, you know, there's this fatal trifecta of an over-reliance on um, intermittent weather-dependent sources, gas, and, um, and imports. Um, and certainly we're seeing that move towards the, the wind and solar, the gas, and a reliance on imports, but you're saying those imports are not going to be available because everywhere there'll be a loss of, of generation. Exactly, capacity. exactly. At the same time as the as the there are many uh, uh, existing units uh, of nuclear units that are going to be shut down, they're they're fighting the second front against the coal, which mm -hmm. is also another major major source of uh, dispatchable power generation. So Germans should actually take lessons of, of fighting uh, wars on two fronts. It doesn't end well. <laughs> You're very confident when you go to those fights, but then you, you're, you're going to lose. That is the reality. Wow. Well put. Well put. Um, <clears throat> all right. So maybe let's, uh, let's shift gears a little bit and zoom in a little bit up, a, a bit more on what you're up to at uh, Fermi Energia. Um, so, you know, maybe stepping back for a second. I mean, I think you, you've... You were around at the time of, of the excitement around a nuclear renaissance um, in the early 2000s. You know, I had Tony Rollstone on the other day, and I always find it hard to speak of, you know, find the word for the first decade of the 2000s. It's kind of an awkward thing to say. And being British, the way they say zero is not. So he calls it the noughties. Um, So in any case, in that first decade of the 2000s, there was, uh, I think, a lot of hope, right? I mean, there was talk of, of large buildouts um, in a number of countries. Um, you know, the AP1000 and the EPR in, in Europe, um, I had a South African guest on, there were 16 gigawatts of nuclear plant at that time. I'm not sure if, if you were paying a lot of attention to nuclear at that time. I, I think you were. Um, of course I was. There you go. I mean, you're in this game a lot longer than I've been for sure. Um, so it, let's, let's talk about how and why that fizzled out and why you think there's a, a new model that's potentially more, um, more applicable at this time. Yeah, uh, so back to Baltic states, Lithuania was uh, had two RBKM uh, reactors that they had to shut down because they didn't meet the safety criteria of uh, European Union. And then they were pursuing a um, uh, large nuclear unit with Hitachi, ABWR, but they made a lot of political mistakes. And I think uh, one of the fundamental political mistakes that a small country can do is not to be able to develop, develop a co cohesive uh, over the aisle, so to say, uh, politics around nuclear energy, because nuclear energy is a, is a, uh, requires uh, a certain level of political cohesion and, 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 and uh, uh, common understanding uh, that is a really long-term effort. Uh, or Lithuanian friends didn't develop that understanding. Um, uh, and they believe that political problems can be overcome with a referenda. Our British friends have learned that uh, this is not the case. <laughs> yeah. um, um, so uh, 
yeah, there were many mistakes, I believe, that uh, wrong assumptions about large nuclear. And uh, why I say uh, wrong assumptions, I, I mean that the reality has shown not only not only because uh, we were ill-prepared, not only because uh, the regulators were not ready, and not only because the supply chain was re not ready, because, but because I think, I think fundamentally the large reactors, uh, as they were trying to satisfy all um, high, high, high safety requirements, I mean the double wall for EPWR, EPR, um, uh, four independent security trains for EPR, they became designs that are really uh, very, very complicated. And, and trying to put, put together a, a 10 billion, 8 billion investment, um, I mean, it was has been multiple times excess, uh, described by your, by your guests as, as to being enormously challenging. So our friends in Czech Republic uh, are preparing for Tukovani, they've done for many years. Our friends in Poland have prepared for the new build project for large units. They've done that for many years. And, and the, the, there are so many items that, you know, to, to execute well, have to go really, really, really well. Mm. And, 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 and uh, the, the choice is only that it is executed by people who have really knowledge about how to execute that. And when we look uh, at the experience by, by Westinghouse and uh, previously by Areva, yeah, it wasn't there. So uh, I'm very happy that the Koreans are executing it very quite well in, in Paraka. The Russians are moderately executing, the Chinese are getting much better. But in, in general, the, 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 the field is very narrow and the capability is quite narrow. So and in, this, in this case, they're also sort of geopolitical rivals, right? I don't think um, that the Russians would be welcome to build reactors in, in a number of, of states. I think there was a recent um, uh, arms factory. I forget which country. Was it in Czechoslovakia, an arms factory that was yeah. uh, blown up uh, under some suspicious circumstances? Oh, no. Our good friends, they are uh, organizing uh, public and uh, less public events uh, every week. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, some computers are being hacked or something like that. So. Uh, yeah, that that is definitely uh, gonna be the feature with our neighbors uh, for coming decades. I mean, if, uh, like if large reactors can only be built by the the Russian and the Russians and the Chinese, they're, they're going to have a hard time getting them built in the West because. Yeah. Of so uh, back to us. So uh, clearly, the, having smaller scale and uh, very well was was recently described by uh, the president and CEO of Chihitachi, Jay Wyman. Uh, why they moved from uh, ESPWR to, to a small modular. It, it's very simple. You can't bank a major company on a, on a single uh, project that is 90% likelihood that it will go over budget and over, over schedule. And, and it is not really easy to raise billion euros from your board, uh, from any board, any financier to saying that, Oh, we believe it's gonna go one, two years more. It's not. This is not, you know, real life uh, that is really possible. So our Finnish friends have pulled it off a couple of times and and hats down. But um, I mean, doing a one billion project is much, much more sensible and 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 meaningful in the also in the how to say. Uh, open market uh, environment of, of current European uh, uh, power uh, power market. Mm -hmm. 
And, and, and so, I mean, you, your, your company is involved, um, I, I believe, not just in Estonia, but more broadly in trying to make a business case for uh, private, in, uh, private investment in, in nuclear generation. Can you tell me a little bit more about, about what form that's taking, how far along you guys are? Yeah, we, we, we uh, obviously are, we are uh, domiciled in Estonia. We, we raised small money, like five, uh, four or five million dollars is in is relatively small money in our, our business line. But uh, yeah, we, we, we believe that starting a nuclear deployment project and moving it credibly forward to, to effective siting, organization development, um, uh, environmental uh, planning uh, and 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 uh, developing the business case for a particular location, developing the public understanding, public perception, uh, public awareness of, of the option, uh, because it, energy is always and nuclear energy always is political. Developing also the regulatory exchange, it is uh, it develops economic value mm-hmm. as it develops the opportunity to deploy a small modular reactor. At um, at uh, let's say fifty euros, uh, fifty dollars uh, break-even price to a market where we can see for that for five thousand hours a year the break-even price or the market price will what is right now is is right now today in Europe is is hundred euros. So uh, and in, in, you're absolutely cool in that situation that for three thousand five hundred hours you're you're selling at uh, 30, 40. So you're you're still making 60, 65, 70. So if if you understand, and that that, that is the dy- totally changing situation compared to let's say five years ago, and too many analysts on, on nuclear economics are still what was the reality five years ago. So five years ago, the zero, the carbon pricing was not a, not an issue, mm. but when we re- look into energy economics of decarbonization. And understand that there will be, and there is a real price on carbon, and there is a at the same time happening the switch from coal, which where we have in Europe still 60 gigawatts and more of capacity that has to be replaced by natural gas to the that is the easiest way to uh, reduce the carbon, and this has also has to happen globally. Then the uh, (laughs) the demand for gas is going to increase to an extent. That the current gas prices we're seeing 40 and plus in Europe, they're gonna stay there and it may potentially even go higher. So this means that what I'm saying, 5,000 hours a year at 100 euros per megawatt hour is gonna be the new normal. So, and if you understand that, then then means that the financial basis, the foundation of, of uh, energy deployment project like nuclear, small modular nuclear. Is totally different co- compared to what what uh, the Hinkley Point or or even the Sizewell guys are, are trying to push for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You don't need subsidies. Yeah, I mean it's 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 pretty daunting to think about the the scale of what's being proposed and and you know the 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 mandatory regulations that are coming in and, and the impacts it's going to have, as you were saying, on the, the the sheer volume of of coal generation or in in um, Estonia's case, uh, <coughs> shale oil generation. Um, and, and the, the likelihood you're seeing of blackouts occurring, I mean, I, I'm not sure if it's as much of a concern there, but I, I'd be very worried about a sort of right-wing populist 
um, you know, anti-climate activist movement arising saying, hey, like we need reliable energy. We're having these extreme weather events. You know, people are dying because our basic services are not functioning because of because of, um, you know, problems with the grid. I think that's a real a real risk um, if we don't seriously get building um, an, a reliable, dispatchable source that that, uh, you know, can replace them. Uh, I think there's a huge urgency here. And, and those timescales seem very, very tight. Um, I want to be convinced a bit more on on the economics. You've said that um, CO2 pricing is really changing the game. Uh, But in terms of, you know, SMR versus traditional or or sort of gigawatt scale nuclear, I mean, obviously, there's there's applications um, in smaller grids. Estonia has not got the the kind of demand that a a large reactor would be would be reasonable for. I think you want sort of um, any one generation source to only be about 10 percent of your grid. So SMRs are a great fit there. Um, you know, you, you obviously listened to my conversation a couple of weeks ago with Tony Rollstone. Um, and, and this has been one of my concerns as well. I mean, in Ontario, we're probably at the forefront, may, might build the, the first of these kind of new generation of SMRs. Um, and there's going to be some issues in terms of, you know, it's not necessarily first of a kind, it's not new technology, although this design has never been built before. Um, but from what Tony was saying, it looks like we're going to need, you know, t- 10 gigawatts of orders, maybe 30 plants to, to equalize those, those economies, those economies of numbers versus economies of scale. So, um, I mean, I guess two things, like I, I want some help sort of um, seeing your, your position on this, your case for this, um, especially given that some of the first builds may go well over, over cost um, and over time, and that might throw some water on, on the hype around SMRs, but also on the need for, or the ability for the private, um, private sector to to fund something that's going to require such a commitment so many units to be built over time so yeah help, help, me, uh, help bring me around here it it depends it depends on the technology choice there are some technologies that really are complicated mm-hmm. i i find it uh, amazing that uh, some uh, developers smr developers uh, find it reasonable to advertise tens of thousands of valves uh, how many thousands of meters of piping they have or uh, something like that. I, I find it quite amazing. Um, and and uh, what, what, what I, I, I came in 2018 when we started uh, discussions in, in our founding group, we were extremely enthusiastic about uh, Gen 4. But now we have learned that uh, as, at least when it comes to Europe, uh, the, the the academia, the utilities, the regulators, they are not ready. So when, when we look at Fermi, uh, Enrico Fermi, he went from Europe to America. Mm-hmm. So the technology was matured and really brought up in America. So after Rickover built the units, and, and obviously you did in, uh, in uh, Chunk River and then the other units that were deployed in Canada, uh, that you have uh, North America has maintained solid uh, government financing for uh, maintaining uh, the staff levels, uh, national labs. That has not been the case in, in Europe. Mm. That has not been the case, which means that the, re- the regulatory capability and the capability of academia and technical support organizations to support relevant um, um, utility activity and the activity by the regulators, it's not there. And it's not there, the the political support is not there for for Gen 4 in real terms. 
Mm. So what we can do in, in, in Europe, in reality, is, is light water systems, which the regulators know, where academia knows, and, and the utilities know more or less quite well, actually, uh, and are, are quite willing to, to invest into, into, into the future. So I, I'm, I'm, I would be concerned if there would be naivety uh, or, or excessive hope that uh, uh, exotic fuel cycles and, and materials and, and technologies uh, are going to simplify licensing, uh, staffing, uh, funding, decommissioning and uh, fuel backend of, of nuclear uh, energy. That I, 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 if, if that would be believed, I would not think that would be quite professional. Uh, doing the first of a kinds of those new technologies will be will be challenging. We're seeing the Chinese uh, building a high temperature gas reactor now for nine years. So if Chinese are building something for nine years, you better pay attention. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's it's not so easy as as uh, uh, so. But but light water systems that really have been licensed, the key uh, items have been gone through pre-licensing, they are credible, the supply chain exists, the supply chain of human resource does exist, regulatory understanding, utility understanding, uh, reliability, the fuel chain is getting more efficient uh, and, and uh, reliable. Uh, so uh, I, I think uh, there indeed is the possibility to su supply over decades, uh, hundreds, of units. Indeed, as we look at, at France, they deployed 30 units at 30 units were in construction at one specific year, 70 mm. units on in construction at the specific year in the United States. So I think this is doable uh, for, for light water systems. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's going to depend a lot on, on some preconditions. Um, and a big one of those is, is political acceptability. Um, in terms of attitudes towards nuclear, but, you know, some other features, um, you know, the U.S. And, and France have both to some degree deindustrialized and uh, deregulated their market. So th there's going to be big challenges for sure. Um, Absolutely. I, you know, in terms of the advanced nuclear, the Gen 4 side of things, I, I always, you know, outside of China, which may have the capacity to just do it on its own. I think if, if in the West we're serious about pursuing those technologies, we need something like a, an ITER, like they're doing for fusion. Um, and here's something that actually probably could produce power within 20 years, but um, we need an international collaboration. Um, you know, the, the heyday of, of, of building uh, exciting designs was when you could actually do those at some of the national laboratories and, and build prototype reactors and, and run them and play with them. And, and to get that kind of operational experience is just, it's all happening on, on computers right now, I think, for those designs. So it's, I agree with you. I think there's, they're, they're a long way off, a long way off. Yeah, and we need... Su supply of, of uh, carbon, low carbon power right now. We, we have to get multiple projects moving right now. And, and you can't do citing environmental impact assessment for, for, for technologies where you don't know all the details. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, you can't get off the ground for a project, for a citing or, or develop a business case for a technology that you have no full confidence, you know? Mm -hmm. So how do you for that you need government grants and I'm extremely pleased that the United States is providing those and I'm pleased that Canada is providing uh, funding for Moltex and other developers mm -hmm. it's right way to do it's the right thing to do 
But when we look for um, decarbonization challenge, uh, supplying tens and hundreds of uh, RPVs, uh, steam supply systems as quickly as possible uh, based on existing infrastructure of, of human resource and, and supply chain and fuel, then, I mean, it would be a mistake to uh, go for exotic solutions. So what, what is your vision in terms of, um, you know, private and, and government cooperation on, on this SMR vision that you have? Because I think you're, you're coming at it very much from the idea of, of these things being privately financed. Obviously, the government has to be involved in nuclear in, in one way, shape or form, whether it's only through regulation or steering um, these projects uh, to some degree. Um, you know, one of my major theses is that I, I don't think that the private sector is going to be capable of, of picking a winner when there's so many designs out there. And we really do need to pick a winner if we're going to be achieving economies of multiples and banging out 30, 40, 50 of these of these same designs. That's that seems hard to imagine uh, coming from the private sector. But yeah, let me know your your thoughts on that. Look, uh, the private sector has to pick the winner on the EVs. Mm -hmm. So it's Tesla. Uh, there are other, others out there, many, but there is only one Tesla. Uh, there is only one, yeah, that, that, that has the best technology and has the best organization and that has the real resources behind it. So I, I'm, I, I'm not fully confident that, uh, uh, that um, the reactor technology that we, we see uh, most credible right now is, is has the same level of resource commitment uh, as uh, as uh, Tesla had in uh, 2000, uh, well, let's say 12, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it certainly has the technology technology potential. So uh, to de deploy it uh, in, in significant numbers uh, globally, not only Europe, not only uh, not only uh, North America, but really globally, because that that is the scale that we are up to uh, globally. I mean, uh, we have to face out uh, fossil fuels. Uh, but um, yeah, uh, the, the relationship of the private sector, and we 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 we, we deal with it also in in Estonia how we work with the government. And I'm, I'm the model is I would say, you know, marriage. Uh, and and because the, in the marriage you you also uh, have common goals. Uh, you have some emotions definitely in the marriage, but you have a common goal of 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 um, Raising children, and uh, and uh, here in this uh, thing, you you have a common goal of decarbonizing, and and uh, and the, so the government definitely is in the play of of setting the rules, the right rules. But uh, there has to be a good cooperation uh, and interchange between the the companies and and the government of understanding what are the uh, rules that work that and some that that don't work. And we have to take lessons from history and, and places where there, there have been failures. I think one of the big, big failures um, uh, and the, the good lesson from Finland is that there is a wide ownership base and, and revenue sharing among, among the society of, of in nuclear energy. And, and the places where the nuclear has been politically clearly unstable and unsuccessful is where you have very anonymous big companies that are extremely bad in, in communicating. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so tell me a little bit more about that Finnish example because I've heard you bring it up before. Yeah, so, in Finland, uh, the, 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 the private company, Teolis Wooden Voima, they, they, they have more than 100 owners and the owners are big, uh, both big uh, uh, 
industrial companies uh, all over the country, but also municipality-owned uh, power supply companies or retail companies. Um, and that's a very successful model. What, what we are trying to emulate in Fermi Energia is to develop uh, a nuclear power share purchasing agreements so that the customers with the, uh, through long-term contracts have confidence in, in getting supply power for long time, low carbon and, and affordable prices. And that is why the Finnish uh, companies and the municipalities have f in the first place invested into nuclear to get a competitive edge in uh, uh, energy intensive industries like steel, se uh, like uh, chemicals and, and most importantly, uh, pulp and paper. And so this, this is the, uh, so why this is why I see, we see clearly the kind of democratization of capitalism uh, really works in nuclear. Mm. And you pool capital, that is also positive. Otherwise, if you're 100% government dependent, then, you know, the problem with, with democracy is that the governments change <laughs> quite often sometimes. And yeah. uh, sometimes they're also not very stable or too dependent on, um, well, let's say, radical ideas like we see in Belgium, very small party dictating essentially the energy policy of, of the whole kingdom right. of, uh, of Belgium. And uh, it's very sad. Or yeah, the, the anti-nuclear president in South Korea, who's really uh, thrown that industry into, into a tailspin after being probably the, one of the most successful industries at getting new nuclear built. Exactly. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. That you run that risk. So uh, look at, and, and I think that the Tesla business model also in uh, having wide ownership base uh, and, uh, has been quite successful also for in terms of uh, uh, reaching out to customers. Uh, with very very modest uh, PR budget compared yeah. to uh, Ford or or the GMs or so. Mm -hmm. So we have to take lessons, you know, from yeah. other industries. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's such a challenge, you know, making comparisons to sort of consumer electronics or or vehicles versus versus power plants. I think we have to be very careful about those analogies, but. You're, you're onto something there for sure. So you, you've had a big interest in what's happening in my backyard here in Ontario. Um, there's site preparation. We have a license uh, to build new nuclear here in Ontario. And there's, I think, three designs that are <coughs> uh, facing off against each other in a selection process um, for, for Darlington. Um, tell us a little bit more about, about why you're paying such close attention to that. Because... Um... As you say, they, they, they do have a site license in Darlington that they're renewing. Uh, I see that OPG really is committed on, on, uh, on the new build in Darlington. I'm, I'm equally as you are, are sad about uh, closing Pickering, but, uh, and, um, and, and they need to uh, replace capacity. Uh, but I, I see also, which, which I consider very, very positive and meaningful is that uh, it is not just Ontario, but that, that there is pan-Canadian, uh, if you may so, so uh, effort and, and understanding that uh, nuclear is relevant for a Nordic country. And uh, Canada is, well, Toronto is way south of Tallinn, <laughs> when you look on, on, the, on your globe next to you. But yeah. uh, we are in the southern, southern shores of Hudson River, Hudson Bay, right, <laughs> right. On, on, where there are let's say little population at least <laughs> what i know uh, so uh, and and alberta 
uh, Saskatchewan and New Brunswick seem to be also serious on new build. Uh, and and, and uh, they want to emulate what uh, OPG is, is going to do and in terms of SMR deployment. So that, that is really relevant. And I, I think that also you have some carbon mechanism that is more meaningful than your North American uh, brothers in the South. And, uh, and I, I, in the, obviously the Americans, they are doing something, but uh, not really anything. Uh, in that uh, in that regard, uh, and and there the the gas is cheap as as dirt uh, still. Um, so that that is a big big problem for uh, Exelon as we see. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, that's why I'm more optimistic that, about Canada uh, than anywhere anywhere else. And and uh, the, so uh, in Europe we 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 really um, uh, I'm very positive about UK. Uh, the Rolls Royce uh, is moving forward. It's it's very right approach. I, I think uh, commercially and and uh, also technology wise, not to go uh, too uh, uh, exotic. But um, uh, but our French friends they they uh, yeah uh, they kind of a little bit missed the boat here. I think uh, in terms of. Uh, when when they recognize that the smaller reactors are going to be uh, probably more attractive than the large ones, and and they obviously have internal competition between the large and the small uh, project. So Chihitachi um, is fully committed on PVRX uh, 300, and it's a mainstay company with its own fuel supplies and uh, decades of experience on on actually maintaining um, and and. Uh, upgrading its uh, beware fleet and uh, yeah it's fairly solid uh, solid mm -hmm. so i mean in terms of you, you looking over to us um you're excited to see something get built because it strengthens your business case that hey this is this can be done i mean darlington seems like a huge testing grounds for the technology it may be the first but again, the first one of these modern, we've had small reactors, obviously, throughout the history of, of nuclear energy as we've trended towards larger sizes. But this will be, other than China, I guess, that they're doing a CP100, but this will be the first kind of SMR built in the West. So it's, people are going to be paying attention, seeing how this goes. There's going to be an enormous amount of pressure on OPG to get it right, um, because that's going to obviously impact um, the case that you have to make in, in Estonia. Am I, am I right on that? Not, not only for us, but also our friends in uh, in Poland, our friends in Sweden, friends right. in, in uh, Netherlands, um, uh, Czech Republic, Romania, Bulgaria, Slovakia, uh, elsewhere. They are paying very good attention what OPG is doing. So what what people have been saying in Canada is globally important. It really is. It really is. Uh, so I, I expect that. Uh, uh, and I've been being also had a conversation with CNSC. I, I I I do sense that they take it quite seriously, and and they are capable uh, regulator and not as how to say politely. Um, NRC is somehow quite well. It could be it could be more efficient as a regulator. Let's say very quite <laughs> politely. <laughs> Yes, I think you know, I think I know what you're getting at there. All right. Well, um, is, is there anything else? I mean, what do you guys see in terms of your your timeline? Um, you've got this 2035 uh, phase out um, of 80 percent of your energy uh, electricity generation in terms of uh, shale oil or oil shale. I can never get that quite right. Um, what's what's your timeline? When when do you think you'll be breaking ground, um, optimistically or, or realistically? 
indeed uh, the 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 canadian project smr is is really really vital i mean uh uh, we believe that if we do a thing, uh, things right in Estonia, that we, we do have a uh, nuclear energy law and uh, a regulator in place by 2027, uh, which would be it, itself a significant feat in a democratic nation in this century to, to go from uh, greenfield to that level, mm-hmm. um, uh, that uh, we, it would be possible to apply for the construction license in Estonia based on successful licensing in, in Canada. And they, for that effect, we have done a, a, a study with Fortum uh, last year, and um, uh, to deploy the, the lessons learned and and also the, when it comes to developing the staff and um, and the construction techniques and uh, so forth. Um, uh, but 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 I would believe that uh, in European Union, uh, at least one or two projects would be moving even more swiftly. I, I would hope that uh, after the EPC contract would have been signed by 2024 in, in for for the target the new build that a few years after that the the licensing would be completed in uh, one or two locations in European Union because we are in a real urgency uh, when it terms you know Netherlands has decided to shut down coal which they have three gigawatts right now uh, mm-hmm. by 2029. Uh, Czech Republic is mulling, uh, shutting down coal, which they have six uh, by 2035. Uh, and, and Poland is, is the largest five gigawatt unit is running out, out of lignite by 2035. Uh, by 2030, most of German coal will be shut down. And right now, as we speak, I'm, I'm checking the numbers, uh, they have uh, 16 gigawatts running. So uh, we're, we're going to have a serious, the, the numbers are huge and we need quick deployment we need we, we need to, to move projects forwards uh, like multiple multiple projects and and we, we, we actually need more fermis in in uh, in uh, most of european countries that really want to have a reliable and affordable uh, decarbonization happening because the easiest way to decarbonize is is uh, is electricity mm-hmm. is the power everybody says that but how do you supply that amount of electricity for transportation, industry, heating, and, and the rest of the uh, society and the economy? It's it's just. Uh, I mean, we in, in Ontario here, we need to basically double our sort of basal consumption. Uh, we need to construct the equivalent of two more Bruce power plants, which are the largest nuclear generating stations in the world. We need another 14 gigawatts just for transportation. So in Europe shutting down an enormous amount of, of generation um, in terms of, of the coal and also nuclear that's being phased out um, and trying to electrify everything. Uh, it, it just, I don't do, are, are more people scratching their heads when they're looking at this and just saying that, that it's insanity or, or people are saying we can just build enough wind and solar to magically make this problem go away. What, what's your sense of, of energy analysts in, in the EU? Is anyone raising the, the alarm about this or? Uh, yeah, there is a denial. Everybody yeah. believes that wind and solar is the solution. I, like because because the mainstream uh, put on on the mainstream uh, the, by the Germans is so so strong. But mm-hmm. I mean, so was Mr. Trump was extremely strong in his message that people stole his election, you know. But he was wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are still still people believing that vaccination doesn't work. Yeah. They are wrong. Yeah. And, and you can shout wrong things to the wind, but it doesn't make it right. 
I mean, you can shout that renewables gonna do the trick, but if the, your actual right now the wind capacity factor is 3.5 in Germany, 3.5 percent. Right. So what? 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 It's not reality. <laughs> it's not reality. Yeah. No, I mean, so I, I see very clearly in Estonia this winter we had uh, the, the the winter uh, winter season when when we have the highest demand, uh, the real load factor of wind was ten percent mm -hmm. for months of January, February, and March. Yeah. Where do you go from there? And obviously, for uh, for solar, the capacity factor was four percent. Yeah. Because we are really latitude fifty nine. So you can't change those realities. Yeah. So. And yeah, so I mean, this, this conversation. Like Finland and Sweden. Yeah. Or Canada. Yeah. No, this conversation is, has really brought that to the forefront. I, I, I haven't seen the energy shock that, that Europe is facing just yet. Um, and there's a big, huge business opportunity. Right. I mean, there's a, there, there was, a, I believe, uh, we, we see Mr. Musk doing quite well with making the strong bet on electrical vehicles. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and obviously, the Germans missing the boat here. And uh, when you look at uh, uh, how Sandy Monroe analyzes the technology uh, of uh, either Ford, Mustang E, Mackie, and, and uh, Volkswagen uh, ID4, they're far inferior in the terms of technology compared to Model A, uh, 3 or, or I. So, mm -hmm. and they are, what, what has been said that it's easy to catch up, it's not easy. And, and also nuclear is not easy. Also the development of the, the capability to deploy nuclear is not easy. So yeah. I'm, I'm fairly confident that, and uh, to, to basically discussing this business model that we, how we approach it, uh, that uh, it is not easy to start a new nuclear company, deployment company, not alone, you know, technology company. Yeah. And I believe that there are need, less need for new technologies compared to uh, actual deployments. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I think that's a, a good place to leave it. Um, we are going to be doing an episode soon on the implications of skyrocketing natural gas prices, which I think Europe is going to be relying on to a big degree to buffer. Not only Asia as well. And Asia. Yeah. Yeah. So we will we'll be covering that angle as well. Um, but Kellen, it's, uh, it's a pleasure having you on. Um, I look forward to uh, continuing this conversation. Maybe we'll get you back at some point uh, with an update. Yeah. Thank you. And uh... Best of uh, best of luck you to your to your podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.